The last time I was here was in a, a campaign in about 2008. There was an old curmudgeon preaching. His name was Keith Mosier. You might know him. <laughs> I love him dearly. By the way, keep his wife Dorothy in your prayers. Um, she uh, broke her hip on Sunday evening. Uh, had surgery on, uh, no, Monday evening and had surgery yesterday morning uh, and is doing well. Um, but uh, if uh, you didn't yet know about that, uh, please keep the Mosiers in your prayers. Uh, Baptist DeSoto. Um, but I can still call him a curmudgeon. <laughs> um, no, but please keep them in your prayers. Uh, thank you for letting us be here this evening. It's indeed a, a pleasure and a treat. The topic is God's creation for this week, digging for answers. Uh, our topic this evening is the biblical account of creation. But one of the things we have to ask when we're talking about the biblical account of creation is, why should I believe it? I dig into the biblical account and... Well, if I start from the perspective of, well, I believe it because, because I just, I know in my heart there's a God. Hmm. Or if I start reading the biblical account of creation and I say, I, I believe it because, because mom always said God was there. Hmm. What's another word for belief? Faith. Hebrews 11.1, 1, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. We need to dig for answers because we're looking for evidence. Faith stands on evidence. We can believe the biblical account of creation, amen, absolutely. But we need to ask the question why. And if we only start with the, the study of Genesis 1, we may have already missed some evidence. We can believe the biblical account of creation because we have sufficient evidence to believe that, that God is. You, you've probably heard the, the phrase, uh, design demands a designer. But if you back up and look at what all of the evidence rec uh, demands, it's not just design that demands a designer. We live in a physical world. Now, according to Hebrews 3, 4, every house is built by some man, but he that built all things is God. Scripture declares that we can know who put everything into existence. Suppose I've got a jar. We'll see We'll say a mason jar. And, and there's no sweet tea in it this time. It's just an empty jar. And I vacuum it out, vacuum seal it. There's no air, nothing inside the jar, sealed. Nothing entering, nothing exiting. How long will it be before something grows inside that jar? A couple of days. There's nothing inside the jar at all. Completely empty, vacuum sealed, no air. How long will it be before something grows? Why not? There's nothing in there. What's, what's 6,722 times zero? Zero. 
Nothing comes from nothing. If I have this jar and it's vacuum sealed, there's nothing in there sealed. Nothing's going to grow. Let's say it's a bigger container. Size of an aquarium. Same scenario, vacuum sealed, just a larger volume. How long will it be before something grows in there? Same situation. Okay, maybe it's a, a container. We'll, we'll use our imagination. We'll say it's a container the size of this room. Again, vacuum sealed, nothing able to enter or exit. How long will it be before something spontaneously develops? Okay, let's, you know, let's go for broke. Let's say we've got a container the size of the universe. Scott, how big's that? Really, really big. Suppose you've got a container the size of the universe. Again, complete vacuum. How long will it be before something develops, spontaneously appears? It's the same situation. Just like anything times zero equals zero, nothing comes from nothing. Now, we understand that when it comes to common sense. Well, we ought to understand that when it comes to common sense. But let's face it, how common is common sense anymore? Rather uncommon. <laughs> There's a law called the first law of thermodynamics. Don't worry, there will not be a spelling bee afterward. You don't have to worry about how to spell it. But you might want to remember the idea. First law of thermodynamics. Uh, this law, and by law, this is something that has been searched and researched and re-researched and proven, consistently always takes place. Neither matter nor energy is being created or destroyed. The universe in which we live, there is a constant amount of matter in existence. Now, when I say matter, or I use the word material, I'm talking about that which is physical, tangible. There is a constant amount of matter and a constant amount of energy because every particle of matter contains energy. You've heard of electrons and protons. A constant amount of matter and a constant amount of energy, but of that matter and energy, it's getting less and less useful. As time moves forward, there is less and less useful energy. Now that's that's actually the second law of thermodynamics and the idea of entropy. Science agrees with this, attests to this, recognizes this. Constant amount of matter and energy, but a declining amount of useful energy. That means that if I work my way backward in time, there is a point at which the amount of energy was all useful. That point in time is the beginning. That means there had to be a start. That's why the scientific community rustled itself into a fervor to create the hypothesis that they called the Big Bang. Now, you know what the Big Bang Theory is, right? The Big Bang Theory is if the front part of your hair stood over two inches tall after 1988, you were out of style. That's the Big Bang Theory. Science's Big Bang Theory 
is the idea that an infinitesimally small speck weighing with the mass of the universe and that small tiny particle exploded into the universe that we have today. Where did the speck originate? That's the problem with the Big Bang idea. It still can't explain the speck. There had to be a starting point at which everything came into existence. And remember, since nothing comes from nothing, well, we run into this question. If, if I have that jar and I leave it there and I come back a couple of days later and I find a, a mouse inside the jar, what has happened? Did the mouse spontaneously appear? No. No, something from outside of that system put the mouse into it. No matter the size of the container. When there's nothing there for anything to appear, something from outside of that system has to act on it. The only way for matter to begin, and by the way, we don't buy that speck idea, but the only way for matter to begin, period, is for something that is not matter, not material, not physical, to bring it into existence. You've got the physical world that has not always existed. Science agrees with that. You need something to have started it. Well, we talk about physical. What's the contrast to physical? Say, spiritual. That which is physical has not always existed. Something spiritual must have started it. Matter demands a creator. We can know that there's a God because we have enough evidence to look at the world around us and, and realize there had to be a beginning. And even that beginning had to be jump-started. Romans 1.20, the invisible things of Him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Genesis 1, the creation, everything that God made there, and the, the fingerprints that He left attest to the fact that He made it. Which takes us to our next idea. Matter demands a, a maker. This physical world had to have a starting point. Life demands a life giver. Genesis 2-7, the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And man became a living soul. A living, the Hebrew word translated soul is nephesh. It's the same word translated creature and, and other similar terms in Genesis 1 and 2. In other words, man came to life. Man came to life not because that dust had a, a, a breeze blow through it, but because God breathed the breath of life. Man would not have had life had it not been given. I want to read to you a couple of quotes. There, 
1933, staunch evolutionist John Sullivan acknowledged that life never arises except from life. In 1965, George Gaylord Simpson wrote, Life only comes from other life. In 2009, uh, Neil Shubin, another staunch atheist evolutionist, said every living thing on the planet had parents. Life always comes from life. It is impossible for anything alive now to have originated from something that was not alive. It's called the law of biogenesis. Bio, life, genesis, beginning. The law of the beginning of life says that for life to start, there already has to be life. Hmm. Well, then how could this physical world have started from an infinitesimal speck and developed over what is it they say now, 14 billion years, into a situation where there are so many different varieties of life. Plant life doesn't come from dust. It comes from seed. Human life doesn't come from dust. It comes from God's breath and perpetuated by seed. By the way, Concerning this situation, you've got two options. As far as the, the start of life goes, life either had to originate from nothing or some sort of life outside of the physical realm had to act. Now, because of that, in 1933, Mr. John Sullivan also said, so far as the actual evidence goes, biogenesis the law of life's beginnings, is still the only possible conclusion, but it is a conclusion that seems to lead back to some, to some supernatural creative act. In other words, this atheist said, the law of biogenesis and the fact that life has to come from life that already exists, that, that, that seems to be the case, but I really don't like it because if that's the case, it points to a God. And we just can't have that. In 2000, uh, 1954, George Wald said there were two options for life's origin. One, spontaneous generation. Life just poof, appeared out of nothing. Or two, the only alternative to believe in a single primary act of supernatural creation. There is no third position. So life either poofs out of nothing or life was brought into existence by life that already existed. If we step back, and it doesn't demand uh, a degree in rocket science. It doesn't demand a, a doctorate in biology. All it demands is really common sense and recognition of the realities of life, when we step back and apply some common sense, we see all the evidence we need for the existence of God. This physical world had to have a start, and it could not start itself. Life had to have a beginning, and life could not initiate itself. 
And then the one that we've so often heard, design demands a designer. Psalm 19.1, the heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament shows his handiwork. Time will not allow us to examine the intricate details just of, uh, of the cosmos and the earth's position in this solar system wherein we spin. But if you think about how far we are from the sun, an average of 93 million miles, what happens if the earth is 10% closer to the sun? We are all well done. What happens if we're 10% further? Life can't exist. Too cold. Perfect distance. Perfect path. Our path deviates, if I recall correctly, it's roughly uh, a quarter inch over the span of 19 miles, which puts us on the perfect course to keep the perfect distance around the sun. If that path were to deviate by uh, e even another quarter inch over 40 miles, then we start getting closer and closer to the sun, we burn up, or we start getting further and further away, we freeze. So the perfect distance, the perfect path, the perfect angle, our globe is on a 23 and a half degree axis, tilted. And the spin of that axis allows us to have changing seasons, which allows life to be propagated over more of the globe. Instead of having uh, more severe extremities closer toward the equator, we have a, a, a broader distribution of life-sustaining environment. Or you think about the distance from our moon. The moon is some 210,000 miles away. If it's 10% closer what is it that the moon tends to control and affect? Tides. What happens if the, the moon's gravity is pulling on the earth's surface and the water creating stronger tides? Mm -hmm. That Kevin Costner movie comes into fruition, but it wasn't global warming that did it. We got water world. Because the oceans are going to ebb away and eat away at the shorelines. Erosion will take place to the point that we don't have land masses anymore. Remember, this earth is three-quarters water. Or what if the earth is 10% further away, or the moon is 10% further away? If it's not exercising that sort of pull on the water, the water is not crashing against the shores as it does today not getting oxygenated, what happens to life in the water? Mm. Oh, and by the way, if life in the oceans can't exist, we really don't have life anywhere else. So we think about just the station of our planet, planet and its distance from the sun, its tilt on its axis, its spin, its path, its distance from the moon, does that sound like chance? Random uh, coincidence. We can look at situations in biology and zoology and, and concerning such as the, the, the yucca 
moth and the yucca plant. The theory of evolution claims that plant life came into existence millions of years before animal life. The yucca plant would have had to existed millions of years before the yucca moth. But you can see where I'm going. Because the yucca moth needs the yucca plant in order to hatch its seed. But the yucca plant needs the yucca moth to cross-pollinate with other yucca plants. Otherwise, it doesn't get pollinated at all. And the yucca plant dies in a generation. The yucca plant and the yucca moth had to come into existence at the same time or within days of each other. It was day three when God made grass and flowers and trees. Isn't that the way we sing the song? And then day uh, five, he made fish and birds alive. Now, whether the insects were included there, uh, or sixth day, the creeping thing, within days of each other, God made the plant and the moth that sustained one another. Design demands a designer. You don't walk into your house after having been on vacation. You left it perfectly clean. And then you enter the front door. You see footprints all over the floor. What do you know has happened? Someone's been there. Someone's left the prints. Whether you're talking about the existence of matter, the existence of life, or the evidence of design, God's left his fingerprints. Why can I believe the biblical account of creation? First and foremost, because I have the evidence to believe in God. I have all the evidence needed to believe in God. And I have the evidence needed to believe the Bible. The biblical account of creation. <laughs> there are all sorts of creation accounts. There's the, the Babylonian Anuma Elish. There the, the Native American creation accounts, accounts that have man and woman just walking out of water into existence and other various ideas. But the creation account of Genesis is the one where we're putting our focus. How do I know I can trust the account that comes from this book? Well, I have sufficient evidence by looking at the world around me to know that there is a God. The heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament shows us handiwork. The invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen. I can look at the physical world and know that God is, but who is he? In order for me to know who he is, then I, I need to find where he's communicated. If, if a creator powerful enough to put this universe into existence, if an entity wise enough to, uh, to engineer even this mere solar system, if such an entity exists and he's communicated with his creation, do you think there might be some, some marks in that communication that would demonstrate that it came from him and only him? Think about Scripture. We can look at the, the scientific foreknowledge contained in Scripture. For instance, perhaps... And I really think the first book of the Bible that was actually composed was probably Job. Job would have lived some four or five hundred years before the time of Moses. 
And yes, it's possible that Moses or another Hebrew was inspired to write the book of Job. Absolutely. But no matter the case, the events of Job occurred before Moses penned his history that went all the way back to the creation. We call it Genesis. We think about the composition of the book of Job. And Job records God's words to him as God gently rebukes Job. Look at Job 38 for just a moment. And think about the statements made by the Creator, the God, as He questions Job about His authority and His, his knowledge and know-how. Job 38, 16, Job, have you entered into the springs of the sea? Or have you walked in the search of the depths? Entered into the springs of the sea. Springs of the sea. Now, anyone ever been to the ocean? Stood on the Gulf Coast? You ever get a taste of that water? How'd it taste? Did you want a second taste of it? Or did you go, it's salty. It's not exactly what we would call appetizing. Can you fathom taking a taste of that water and saying, I bet there are are freshwater springs out there somewhere. Are you going to look at all the vastness of the ocean and say, yep, it all tastes just about like that. God asked Job, have you seen the springs of the sea? Literally freshwater springs. Yes, they exist. One of the most notable is just off the coast of Hawaii. Of course, those were not found until mankind had the capacity of exploring in the submarine environment. By the way, Job didn't have a submarine. Job had never met Jacques Cousteau. Yet Job recorded God asking him, have have you walked in the springs of the sea? Job, have you seen the freshwater springs under the sea? How could Job have accurately documented that scientific fact 4,000 years before science discovered it. Or skip down, Job 38, verse 24. Job, by what way is the light parted? The light parted. What does that mean? Does light part? Yes, it does. Anyone ever heard of the band called Pink Floyd? There's an album called Dark Side of the Moon. What's it look like? Front cover. Prism. Light hitting the triangular prism. And on the other side, what's coming out? Rays. Rays. The colors of what? Rainbow. The, uh, the visible spectrum. Job, do you know how the lights parted? Now, if you're Job, are you going to be looking at the rainbow and saying, oh, look, the parting of light. But that's exactly what God describes to Job 
as he asked this particular question. The understanding of rays of light parting and separating is not something that mankind grasped until the last couple of hundred years. Yet God asked a question in the book of Job uh, 4,000 years before our time that hits on scientific fact that, that took millennia to discover. Or Ecclesiastes 1 verse 7, Solomon describes some cycles. He starts off in verse 5, he says, the sun rises, the sun sets, and hastens again to the place where it arose. We understand that. It looks like the sun comes up in the morning, goes down in the evening, and then the next morning comes right back up at the place where it started. The cycle of the sun. By the way, does the sun literally rise? Or are we rotating? The, the sun's essentially, relative to us, the sun's essentially in its same spot as we spin. But it looks like it's coming up and going down. Does that mean Solomon didn't understand how the sun worked? Or was he describing things accommodatively? Ecclesiastes 1, 6, he says, The wind goeth to the north, turns again to the south, and circles again to the north, to the, and hasteth again to the place whence it came. Hmm. So picture the earth as a globe. You've got the wind going north and south and north and south and north and south. Anyone ever watch the Weather Channel? Anyone ever see those images of the, uh, the North American continent? And you've got these curvy lines with arrows on them going up and down across the... They call it the jet stream. The jet stream is a, a current of air, sometimes higher, sometimes lower, but it, the, the broadness and intensity of the jet stream impacts our weather patterns. It's wind going to the north, to the south, and going all the way back to where it started. Now, how much did Solomon pay for his subscription to watch the Weather Channel? Yet in Ecclesiastes 1.6, he described exactly that. Where did these biblical writers get their information? Unless their information came from God. Now, time won't allow us to investigate all of the evidence regarding the scientific foreknowledge in Scripture, but the Bible is filled with scientific evidence after scientific evidence, not because the Bible was ever intended to be a scientific textbook, but because God knew what he was discussing whenever he inspired his penman to write. Parents, have you ever made statements to your children that you knew they would not fully grasp for years to come? Absolutely. There are times when you, we, we plant seeds in their minds. We, we give them something so that they can, they can chew on it. And just have the, the words or the thoughts there. And years later, it'll click. Maybe it's those statements such as, uh, I never knew how, how little a dollar was worth until, well, they're thinking, well, a dollar's worth a dollar. How's he so silly? But then late, years later, they're going to be saying, ah, oh, I knew what he meant. God gave scientific statements in Scripture that were not intended to be uh, 
a science class for the penman. But it does serve as evidence for us. Scientific foreknowledge or the uh, historical accuracy. Genesis 23, Abraham's buying a a burial plot for his wife Sarah. He interacts with the people of Heth, they're called the Hittites. He buys the burial plot from Ephron the Hittite. Later, Joshua chapter 3, Joshua is going to say, here's how you'll know the Lord God has brought you into the land. He's given you the land of the Canaanites, the Jebusites, the Gergesites, the Hittites. Repeatedly in scripture, the Hittites are mentioned. Now, what's interesting about that is, about the mid-1800s, some people that, you ever hear somebody say, too big for your britches? Well, some folks that got too big for their britches started to say, we have no physical evidence of the Hittites. We found no archaeological artifacts concerning their culture, no pottery, no weaponry, no housing remnants. We have no physical evidence of the Hittites. The Hittites did not exist, but the Bible speaks of the Hittites. Therefore, the Bible made it up. It's fiction. That was the line of reasoning. As providence would have it, within about 10 years, archaeology started to discover remnants of a culture hitherto unknown to archaeology. And over the course of just a short period of time, they realized these Hittites. See, now if you look in any encyclopedia, we know when they lived, where they lived. We have artifacts of their pottery and their weaponry and their housing. We know that the biggest part of them lived in the area that we would now call Turkey. And the people with whom Abraham was interacting were more of a satellite group, an extension of their primary culture. But the point is this. The hotshot said the Hittites didn't exist. They said the Bible was wrong. The evidence showed otherwise. The Bible was right. It's fascinating to look at the historical accuracy of Scripture. The Bible is actually the launch point for so much of what's known about Assyrian kings such as Sennacherib and Tiglath-Pileser. It it was the, the guiding compass for further archaeological discovery. Or in Egypt, the ruler of Egypt, what's he called? Pharaoh. Sometimes. Then sometimes in history he was called king of Egypt. Sometimes in history he was called Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And if you work your way through scripture, then at the times that Pharaoh was called Pharaoh, scripture calls him Pharaoh. At the times when Pharaoh was called king of Egypt, scripture calls him king of Egypt. And at times when he was called Pharaoh, king of Egypt, guess what scripture called him? Ted? Nope, nobody's awake. Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Scripture identifies Pharaoh properly every time in terms of the title of the ruler of that nation. Now, let's say you were, you were going to make up a fictitious history. You can't use the internet. You don't have real research documents, but you're going to make a fictitious history of the... Uh, 
the nation of Zimbabwe. Are you going to be able to give an accurate description of what they called their rulers 200 years ago? You might roll the dice and call them a king, but are you going to have any confidence in its accuracy? Yet scripture identified Egypt's ruler accurately, which indicates the timing when scripture was written, its historical accuracy. Now, one other idea concerning why we can trust the uh, integrity of scripture. Isaiah 7, 14, Behold, a virgin shall conceive, bring forth a child, they shall call his name Emmanuel. Well, now we know that's a prophecy concerning Christ, right? Isaiah said those words about 725 years before Christ's birth, describing the virgin birth of Messiah. Or you think about Micah 5, verse 2. Micah said, And thou, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, out of thee shall come forth he that shall be ruler of Israel, whose goings forth have been from everlasting. Micah wrote about 700 B.C., just a few years after Isaiah, and indicated that there would be a ruler in Israel. Ruler. What's another word for ruler? King? Israel. What's another word for the people of Israel? The Jews? Micah spoke of the town from whom the king of the Jews would come, ruler in Israel, the one whose goings forth had been from everlasting. And he was speaking to Bethlehem Ephrata. 700 years before Jesus was born, Micah identified the place where Messiah would be born. Now, between Isaiah's prophecy concerning the virgin birth and Isaiah's prophecy concerning the, the town from whence he would come, does that just happen by chance? Let me ask this question. Can you predict the name and circumstances of any child that will be born one year from now? Not in eight months, that doesn't count. One year from now. Yet scripture gave details of the Christ 700 years before his birth. Or if we're looking at the, the prophetic, the fulfilled prophecy in scripture, look at Isaiah 44. Now, remember, Isaiah wrote around 700 B.C., uh, a little bit before. Isaiah 44, picking up at verse 20, uh, 27, ah, 28, God saith of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and shall perform all my pleasure even saying to Jerusalem, thou shalt be built. And to the temple, thy foundation shall be laid. God called Cyrus by name. Now remember, this is about 700 B.C. or a few years before. Cyrus. Cyrus was the one that would be the ruler of the empire we call the Medo-Persians. The interesting thing about Cyrus is that when Isaiah said these words, the Medo-Persians were more of an upstart nation. Babylon was the real threat. Babylon was the nation that was going to be imposing its will on 
Isaiah's people within 100 years. Cyrus was the ruler of the next empire that would rise, that would put down Babylon. Isaiah called the name of the, the general slash king that would conquer Babylon and then say, rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. By the way, when Isaiah wrote these words, the temple in Jerusalem was still standing. And if these words were written during Hezekiah's reign, and it seems that they were, the temple was in good working condition. It was in better shape than it had been in, in decades. And Isaiah talked about one that would issue the order for it to be rebuilt. Within about 100, uh, around 120 years from Isaiah penning these words, the temple would be destroyed, completely demolished. The Jews would go into captivity in Babylon. They would be in captivity for 70 years. Their first waves of captives would go into captivity in 606 B.C. The temple wouldn't be destroyed until 586. But the, the first waves of captives started returning from captivity in 536 B.C. Look at 2 Chronicles chapter 36. 2 Chronicles 36 records the words of a ruler not quite 200 years after Isaiah penned these words. Second Chronicles 36, picking up at verse 22. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord spoken by the mouth of Jeremiah might be accomplished concerning their freedom and liberation. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, and he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom. Put it also in writing, saying, Thus saith Cyrus, king of Persia, All the kingdoms of the earth hath the Lord God of heaven given me, and he hath charged me to build him an house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Cyrus gave the order, go back and rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. When we look at Scripture, we can believe it. We can believe it because of its historical accuracy, its scientific foreknowledge, and its fulfilled prophecy. Isaiah called Cyrus by name 150 years before he was born, almost 200 years before he issued this decree. Can you predict the name of the ruler of the next great world empire 200 years down the road? I can't even tell you what the world empire will be. But Isaiah identified him. How did he do that if not guided by a knowledge that went beyond human? Why are we looking at all of this? Because unless I'm convinced that he is, unless I've looked at the evidence and arrived at the conclusion there must be a God, and unless I've looked at the evidence and arrived at the conclusion that this must be his book, then it doesn't matter what Genesis 1 says. I can know he's there. And I can know that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. I can know that this is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction, and righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. I can know 
if I can trust what it says about history, if I can trust what it says about science, if I can trust what it says about fulfilled prophecy, then I can trust what it says about God, about man, about his plan for our lives, and about the very beginning of our existence. Now, we can believe the Genesis account, biblical account of creation because we can believe that God is. We have sufficient evidence. We have sufficient evidence to know that the Bible is his book, and we have sufficient evidence to know that Genesis 1 is an account. Our title tonight is The Biblical Account of Creation. It's not the story. Parents and grandparents, I want to encourage you to consider something. When we tell our children stories, then we put that information in the same category as Little Red Riding Hood, The Three Little Pigs. But when we tell our children about biblical events, when we tell them about the accounts, when we talk about the history, I don't want to make the mistake of misconstruing the contents of this book as just some story. Oh, I know that there are times we could say, tell me the story about, about Abraham Lincoln at Gettysburg. Yes, we, the, the word story can be used to convey factual events, but can also be misunderstood to be portraying fiction. Whereas if I'm careful with my language, then I can convey the idea this is an account. And by the way, when we talk about Genesis 1, this is an account, and not, not only is it not a story, it's not poetry. Nor is it figurative. That's going to be particularly important. Genesis 1, six days. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. The earth was without form and void. Darkness was upon the face of the deep. The Spirit of God moved on the face of the waters. That biblical account of creation starts in the beginning and declares the evening and the morning were the first day. The evening and the morning were the second day. The evening and the morning were the third day. We work our way through the events of Genesis 1 six times. The evening and the morning were the numbered day. There are those that try to portray certain parts of Genesis 1 as figurative. Some assume that the word day has a figurative meaning. Now, Scripture will use the word day in a figurative way. By the way, when we say the word day, we're talking about the Hebrew word yom. It's sort of like what you say whenever you eat a piece of cake, but with an ah instead of an uh. Not yum, but yom. Day, yom. This word is used three ways in Scripture. It's used to refer to a literal 24-hour day. For, for instance, if we're talking about uh, the... Uh, we're talking about just a, a, a period of time. Uh, take Noah and 150 days the flood of water was upon the earth. That's 150 24-hour days. Or sometimes the word yom, day, is used to convey the, the light part of the day. Genesis 1, the, the evening and the morning were the first day, or the light he called day, the darkness he called night. 
There are times when we use the word day and we describe when the daylight is out. Scripture does the same thing. So we might use the word day to describe a 24-hour period. Scripture does the same thing. We might use the word day to describe the daylight hours, so does Scripture. Or we might use the word day to describe back in the day when I was young. Or the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord as described in Scripture is not necessarily a set 24-hour occasion, but a time period. Uh, we might say back in the day of George Washington, and we're using the word day to refer to an elongated period of time, general. Scripture uses the word day in three ways. But when you see that word day connected to a number, it always means a 24-hour day, every time. When you see that word day aligned with the evening and the morning were the first day, the second day, well, if you've got an evening and you've got a morning, then you know you're talking about the parts of a day. Why is this important? There are those that have been so intimidated by what is viewed as the... Uh, they've been so intimidated by scientific pressure that they've decided to try to work billions of years into Genesis 1. Instead of 24-hour days, they see in Genesis 1 the opportunity for God to create the heaven and the earth over a few billion years. And then day two to, to set that firmament in the midst of the waters over a few billion years. And then day three, the, the, the grass and the herb-bearing seed, a few billion years. There are some problems with that. For one thing, we mentioned earlier that yucca moth and the yucca plant. Well, if it's billions of years between day three and day six, that yucca plant stands no chance. But there's another problem also. We can know that the Bible, which we can trust, looks at Genesis 1 as an account, a literal description. For instance, Exodus 20, verse 11. When God commanded the Israelites to remember the Sabbath day and to keep it holy, He gave them a point of reference regarding the timing of this command. Exodus 20, verse 11, For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that in them is, and rested the seventh day. They were to rest on the seventh day because that's what God did. By the way, God rested one day. He, he's, he doesn't continue to rest. He rested the seventh day. Now, when he commanded them to rest the seventh day, that was based on the rest that he exercised. If God's seventh day rests, if the days of creation were billions of years, then God could never charge the Jews with any wrong for having never observed a Sabbath because they've not been around for billions of years. But their observation of the Sabbath was to be with the same frequency that reflected the time period that God made heaven and earth. Six days rest on the seventh. Or take a look at Luke, Luke 11.50. Let's see what Jesus has to say about the events of creation and the, the time period between the beginning of the creation and the arrival of man. If the evolutionary 
ideas correct, then the earth has existed for 14 billion years and man has only been on this earth for about the last two million. If you were to put that in terms of seconds, then in a 24-hour day, man would only be around for the last two seconds of it. That, that's roughly the, uh, how insignificant man's existence is in the evolutionary model. But look at how Jesus described it. Luke 11, verse 50, He charged them with the blood of all the prophets, which was shed from the foundation of the world. Well, now the foundation of the world means the start of the world. Jesus spoke of blood being shed at the beginning of the world. And if blood was shed at the beginning of the world, then that means man had to be there at the beginning. And by the way, 13.9 billion years later ain't the beginning. English teachers, I hope you'll forgive me, but that ain't it. Verse 51, from the blood of Abel, there's the blood at the foundation of the world, the blood of Abel under the blood of Zechariah. Abel, the first murder victim. Jesus calls him slain at the foundation of the world because he was that close to the beginning. Or take a look at Mark 10. Mark 10, verse 6, he's asked a question about marriage. And notice what he has to say about the institution of the home. From the beginning of the creation, God made them male and female. From the beginning of the creation, from the time that this created order was put in place, God made man male and female. Christians, I can believe the Genesis account because Jesus described it as an account. I can believe his, the description of creation because that's how Moses looked at it. That's how Christ looked at it. That's how God looks at it. When we talk about the biblical account of creation, every bit of evidence, every bit of truth that I can glean from it is absolutely reliable. Every detail concerning the creation is absolutely accurate. And I can know that because I have all the evidence in the world I need to know that God is there to know that this is his book and to know that this is an actual account. It's an event. It's not something that's set up with billions of years between Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, this gap theory, or these day ages. No. I can read it for what it was intended to be, a literal word-for-word -word description of how we came to be and who made us to be. We can believe the Genesis account of creation. The real question is going to be, will we? We are out of time. Matter of fact, I think I went over by 45 seconds and haven't been shot yet, but I'm not going to push it to a minute. So. <laughs> Thank you, sir.